Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. 20 years into the 21st century, an era of remarkable change that has brought new business models, new competitors, an age seemingly characterised by killer apps and category killers. We're talking Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Netflix in the West, whilst in the East it has been Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. So what about the next 20 years? It's not so much tax now as tax tomorrow. Hello, my name is James Mabbott. Today we will be exploring KPMG's 20 predictions for the next 20 years. And with me today to discuss the future and what it might mean for revenue authorities and revenue collection professionals and advisors is Grant Waddell-Johnson and Peter Jing. Hello and good morning to you both. Hi, James. Thanks for having us. Welcome. So before getting into specific questions, um, I'd like to ask you both, do you have a favourite prediction and why? A uh, bit biased, but I'd say it's the uh, birth of the superhumans. <laughs> so this is, uh, yeah, no, we're looking at um, the technologies that would actually, you know, question what it is that makes us human in the first place. But I'd say, you know, the the tax side of things is actually much more interesting because it is the basis, I'd say, of civilization itself. And some of the programmable money elements and global digital currencies is probably my second favorite. That, that's true. There's only two certainties, aren't there? Life in life, death and taxes, and uh, we're talking about the future, a much more uncertain um, proposition. So, Grant, from your perspective, favourite prediction and why? You might give this uh, sort of think that this is banal, but if we go back to the 19th century, electricity had been around for a while before people thought of elevators, and elevators obviously created new cities and we went up vertically. So my prediction is actually drivable cars won't become driverless cars. They'll become a completely new uh, mode of transport that will transform cities, um, will transform the urban environment, will mean that you can go from Jarvis Bay to the Opera House in within, within less than an hour, and that will change life dramatically. Jarvis Bay to the Opera House <laughs> in an hour. It's an attractive proposition. That's it. Add that to the 21 lessons now. There are 21 predictions. <laughs> Absolutely. It might fit within our mobility changes everything prediction. Uh, so... If we take a little closer look, I guess, at some of the predictions within the 20 predictions, one of the things we talk about is this notion of corporate digital currencies taken off. And I guess last year we saw um, Libra have a little stumble, but it does make you think what challenges might a corporate digital currency present to revenue authorities and um, what possibilities do we think things like programmable money might present? Peter? Yeah, I mean, think about um, what it's trying to do. It's trying to challenge the very notion that a government would have sovereignty over its own money. And if you think about what Libra is trying to do, even though it is a stable coin, so it is pegged to a basket of central government currencies, but also uh, some of the convertible uh, notes as well on treasuries. But what it's trying to challenge is that, well, what if there is another currency that's issued in abundance? So you actually have no longer control of your monetary policy. And that's why governments are concerned all around the world, because if this adoption of Libra becomes more prominent, then they start losing those levers across their monetary policy. And eventually, US dollar dominance across the global impact around the economy. 
will be challenged. So this is why the regulators are all up in arms using things like, you know, counter-terrorist financing and anti-money laundering as sort of base cases of things that they need to challenge Libra from. But as you can see, you know, just recently Shopify has signed on to the Libra Association, so they're actually getting traction again. And eventually we'll see an implementation of something like Libra, might not necessarily be Libra, out in the world. And that's why you see central governments around the world starting to think about their own digital currency, a central bank digital currency that uses similar technologies, but backed by the central government. Yeah, it's an interesting proposition. I mean, one of the things I've always found fascinating uh, is the way in which different governments globally often use uh, regulatory arbitrage to create um, opportunities, you know, things like tax um, incentives or, or invitations. And it makes you wonder whether or not you might see an era where corporates uh, indulge in that sort of activity themselves, create some sort of corporate regulatory arbitrage through a through a, um, a currency mechanism that they control. And um, That's right. Grant, I- interested in your thoughts as well in and around this this topic. Do you think this notion of digital currencies present some opportunities as, as well as challenges? On the revenue side, I think revenue administrations will cooperate in the future because they'll need information in relation to exchange and what that actually means. There might be geopolitical dimensions in relation to this, though, in, 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 you know, uh, before full international cooperation, and that might work in blocks, China, US, um, Europe. Um, so... Uh, one of the elements that we see globally at the moment is what's going to happen to the US dollar and is that going to maintain itself as the, the major trading currency and this will fit within that. Yeah, yeah. China's been working on their digital RMB since, you know, the Belt and Road Initiatives and the Made in China 2030 uh, plan. So, you know, they do these multi-decade plans as part of the government, and you know they'll deliver on it uh, over time. So with the digital RMB will come with that competing US dollar dominance, but also roll it out as part of the Belt Initiative in, uh, you know, many nations in Africa and all sort of trading partners that China has, and that includes Australia. So it'll question our government on, you know, where do we want to play in the role of developing our own central bank digital currency to potentially, one, interoperate with the Chinese digital RMB or potentially work with the US as well to actually create an interoperable one. Yeah, and it makes you wonder in that sort of environment where you have a programmable uh, digital currency that might store a history of its own transactions, um, you know, we could see a future where a digital coin becomes a collector's item, for example, a la things like CryptoKitties um, online or, or even more um, possible, I guess, or interesting uh, to think about would be a future where because the coin itself has this history of transactions on it, whether or not you can actually have money or almost structure a transaction itself without the need for intervention from professionals like ourselves or even the need for a collection authority. That's right. And that's the sort of techno-libertarian dream of uh, everything being programmable and these smart contracts operating these uh, decentralized autonomous organizations where, well, all the dividends will go to the shareholders, but who will those shareholders be? Maybe we're going back to an era of non-negotiable checks where you actually had signatures on the back of them all. You could trace the history from its beginning to where it was now. That's right. And we talk more on the, the traceability of those uh, the provenance of goods and services with uh, KPMG Origins uh, mm. in the next episode of the podcast. We're essentially tokenizing every, every product 
along the supply chain and how that would operate with a digital currency to do that real-time settlement and also tracking of the transactions with governments having visibility of all parts of that transaction throughout the economy. Or maybe not if they're privately operated. <laughs> That's right. That's so, so some interesting uh, challenges that sit there within within that space. And I think, you know, staying with this theme of um, potential disruption and structural change, one of the other scenarios um, we play with in the predictions is where we have a film that's written by artificial intelligence. And, you know, sitting behind there's this notion that's not just written, it's directed, it's edited by, by AI, it is created by uh, computer-generated images. The images are acted and voiced by AI. In fact, there is no human involvement whatsoever in the delivery of this product, this good, this service. And that raises for me the question of, we have no people, no agency involved, so to speak. Um, what issues does that raise in, for a revenue collection authority or, or, or they just don't care? Grant? I think this is sort of part of the whole history of capital deepening. So by capital deepening, I mean the amount of capital um, per unit of labour. So this is an extreme version of it where you get a very, very thin level of, of labour for a lot of capital. Um, where do I think that goes in terms of revenue collection? Maybe it's going to mean that we end up moving the tax base from a personal tax base to more of a capital tax base. I think that'll be a long time coming, but that's possibly um, an area of the future. Yeah, definitely. The erosion of the tax base, you know, through the income tax and corporate tax, we're seeing a, a race to the bottom all around the world in terms of lowering their corporate tax rates. And now value-added tax is being considered more and more throughout the economies uh, in terms of trying to tax that transaction-level data, um, uh, of uh, transaction-level um, sales tax as well. Um, what we're going to see is also that digital tax being implemented around the OECD, seeing that loss of the tax base because, you know, companies like Amazon, you mentioned around the East and the West tech companies, they're taking away billions and billions of dollars out of the, you know, local economies. So all those, you know, um, uh, brick and mortar shops are essentially losing that particular revenue. But at the same time, they haven't paid any tax in 2018. So, for example, where would you be able to tax that? Well, it would be passed on to the end consumer as a value-added tax um, is one way to potentially tax that particular transaction. Um, but also, well, what does that lead to in terms of the, the differences that we have with, between working capital? Well, the shareholders are benefiting from uh, being a shareholder of the Amazon um, of Amazon shares but not actually having to pay the equivalent tax when it comes to the corporate tax elements. Um, yeah, so I think uh, the value-added tax is becoming probably a, a more viable solution. We're seeing in the United States uh, there is a candidate that was recently running, Andrew Yang, who was proposing a universal basic income, and to pay for that was there through a value-added tax of the equivalent of the European levels. Um, and just recently, one of his um, uh, people that on his campaign is also uh, working with the Californian Senate there, and uh, they've actually proposed to, to this bill that implements a value-added tax in California uh, and also paying $1,000 a month to all the Californians. So this, is, this idea is gaining more and more momentum, not just the value-added tax, but what do you do with that capital as well? And, and it's an interesting um, thing you raised there, Peter. It's almost like we scripted this with that mention of the phrase universal basic income because that is one of the things that sits within uh, the predictions and... Um, you know, there is this notion, I guess, as you look forwards that and that AI, uh, CGI film scenario plays it out, that the potential for human employment may in some sense um, be less and that has all sorts of implications for what it means to be a person and the contribution you make to society. But it also raises this idea around, well, how do we get 
uh, fiscal stimulus into the economy and, and what mechanisms might we use to do so. And uh, there's that notion of the universal basic, basic, universal basic income that sits behind that. Mm. Uh, so, so I think, you know, how might that play out in, in a country like Australia? Grant, do you have some yeah, perspectives James, around that? Yeah, I'm not in favour of the UBI concept. Um, Hannah Arendt wrote a, wrote a book called The Human Condition and she drew a distinction between labour and work. And she said, we as humans like work in the sense of creativity, making things, etc. And I agree with that. Um, what I think uh, the future could do is do away with the drudgery through technology, but we need something to replace it, which is work, and not just going on a golf course, but actually um, creating something. So I'd much prefer to see guaranteed work than a UBI concept. Yeah, this, um, yeah, definitely. I think work definitely brings a lot of meaning to people's lives. And I think what the argument was with the universal basic income is that there's a lot of work being done out there but that are not being paid or being quantified or being measured in GDP terms. So things like, you know, stay-at-home mums and dads where they're essentially looking after their kids. Care, you know, childcare and caretaking is not being accounted for, not being paid is also not being taken into account in the GDP measures. So those are the sort of things that a UBI might try to supplement. So that that thousand dollars a month or whatever it is is essentially taking into account what you would do in your spare time, or in your time that you don't work you know, in in the job sense of things, but do things like volunteering and also outside in the communities. What you would add um, in, in to one fulfil that sense of purpose, but also uh, be able to have um, monetary um, uh, association with that as well. Um, and that's a sort of a lot of people starting to think, well, there is a lot of things that aren't being paid for. Like, essentially, these are externalities in the economic sense, positive and negative, that are not being priced. Um, and so that's what UBI is trying to measure. And at the same time, James, you know, referring to the, the technological advancements with, you know, things like, uh, the, you know, driverless cars that are coming out, or if we did have an autonomous Uber system where you know none of the drivers are actually being paid to do the work and the robots are driving themselves. They might do their own repairs and maintenance on a, on a factory floor, and you know the the ownership of Uber, the shareholders are the ones that are um, essentially benefiting from all this profitability that's coming out without any association association to human labour. So this is where we're sort of saying, well, where does that transfer of the value happen? if you're trying to drive an economy and make it sustainable, that works for humans. And I think that's why at the World Economic Forum, we saw the rise of um, you know, discussions around the stakeholder of capitalism. So it's not just you know, purely for profit, even though it's you know, the, the board and, and shareholders are still required to, to try to drive as much return on your investment. The stakeholder capitalism actually ensures that you are sustainable as an organisation. So yeah, we're gonna, I think we're going to see more and more trends along those lines. And I think the other thing that sits behind it for, for mine is this, uh, it is this fiscal economic stimulus piece, right? So there's, there's two elements to it to me. There's the, the purpose and the meaning we attribute to our lives, which I agree with you, Grant, absolutely. That, that work component around creativity, um, doing something that you enjoy, that, that creates real meaning for you and the people around you, I think is a fundamentally um, quintessential human um, condition and, and character trait. And I think the other element is one of, and, and to me there's a logic to this that says, well, if you have a lot of automation and intelligence in the workplace and there's less opportunity to do um, paid work in the traditional sense as we understand it, that's a problem for an economy because who's going to buy the goods that are created 
or purchase um, the music or the films and participate in these things without some form of income to to do that. And the other bit that goes hand in hand with that for mine is um, the entrepreneurial side of things. If you want to create new businesses and new opportunities, mm-hmm. the capital piece that goes with that. And I think that's potentially one of the um, the roles or mechanisms that sits around a, a concept like this. I, I think it's much less about the the welfare income supplementation piece, I think it's more about how do you create opportunity and I think that's where it becomes really interesting yeah. uh, potentially from that perspective. That's right. And you hope the market forces also drive the prices down through this, you know, age of abundance that we create with all the automations. That you know, that's you know potentially where market failure does happen. And so that's where an allocation like, you know, taxation is is sort of the foundation for that mechanism to happen. Absolutely. And I think you know, staying on that uh, that course of you know, greater automa- automation and intelligence in the workplace. One, one of the other things we speak about is this potential for human augmentation and uh, the need for lifelong learning. And it, and it does make you wonder, what does that mean for people in the tax profession? What sort of skills and capabilities um, do we think are going to be required into the future? Um well, I think the sort of the filling out the income tax return is, is going to be dead in a very short period of time. Um, but that doesn't mean that thinking creatively um, will be lost to the tax profession. It will broaden so that people will think um, tax and other things um, in a whole, more holistic way rather than a more fragmented way. Um, but it's possibly going to be a profession that declines um, in the future as many will. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, the transition will be, well, how do we codify the legislation to essentially so that we can comply with it in a way that does so does it in a programmable way? So, you know, you mentioned the, the input into the tax returns. You know, companies like CCH Integrator and Thomson Reuters, one source, they're a digital version of that to be able to make sure that you have rules in place to, to make the lodgement of the returns in a, in a compliant format. Um, but then the codification of legislation itself, I think that's where we see. I think Data 61, CSIRO's um, and Data Team essentially created the digital legislation initiative. So everything, every time they want to legislate, potentially we could also have that in a code format, kind of like with APIs. You know, you have these endpoints that integrate with the way that transactions are done. So that you know, if this then that type taxes, for example, whether it's GST or income tax, um, uh, that way you're guaranteed to comply if you've got the right parameters in place. I think that's probably where the exciting field of um, tax digitization will happen and automation will come with it. And couple that with the central bank digital currency, tokenization of goods and services in the economy, we'll have sort of that real-time sensation, uh, sensors of, of information capturing, what a perfect information to tax that point at the transaction level. So that's probably like, you know, where, where, I, th- where I think maybe the, the tax landscape might um, fall in, in a blue sky scenario, whether that will actually translate with the regulations that we have in place is another story, I think. But next 20 years, I'm looking forward to that. Tax functions globally are shrinking or at least not maintaining the same size while uh, a company is growing. But the work that they do is far more high level and far more engaging Mm. and uh, in most cases uh, involves many jurisdictions. Mm. Yeah, it does make you you wonder with... um you know, the potential future around this notion of augmentation and what that might mean, you know, discussions around uh, brain-computer interfaces and your notion, Peter, of the codification of tax in some sense, you, you know, that you might actually um, upload or download into your own little brain chip 
um, the tax rules and mm-hmm. and have your own uh, you know return. Um, like that scene from the Matrix you know, is like I know corporate tax. It's like that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you know that that does. And then you know maybe in your scenario, Grant, it's the equivalent of a supercomputer chip alongside our own human creativity to find ways to apply those rules um, in in ever more increasingly creative. Um, opportunities to help um, provide outcomes for for um, individuals and organisations that maybe weren't foreseeable mm, uh, without right. the application of technology. And just think about what the revenue authorities will want to do when they have brain-computer interfaces. Will they start taxing your excise thoughts? You know, if you think about smoking, then they'll take a clip of that. So, you know, there's just a, <laughs> a lot of things that we could um, look forward to. In the next a, a thinking years. tax. <laughs> That's so, right. Sounds like a modern version of the window tax. Um, <laughs> So, and, and, and so I think, you know, the other thing um, here in and around this, and, and it's come up a couple of times in the conversation, is, you know, this opportunity that might sit around these various predictions, whether it be um, programmable currencies, um, augmented tax collectors, you know, the tax terminator, if you will, potentially, um, this idea of faster, cheaper, truly global payment systems, the transparency that might flow through that, and I guess you know, the opportunity that might create for tax authorities to cooperate in ways which which they never have before. Um, You know, it kind of feels like there's a couple of different ways that could go in terms of authorities leaning into that or people using it to create arbitrage opportunities. What sort of scenarios do you think might might eventuate? Um, It raises all sorts of questions in terms of privacy and there's a dimension between privacy technology and taxation. Mm. China will definitely go one way in that space, but Europe probably as well. Europe um, loves privacy, but to the extent that it sees um, an evasion of revenue, it will be willing to to move away from that space. So, uh, and the US is probably similar, but it has cultural differences. But probably you will see greater use of data by revenue authorities um, and a diminution of privacy in that particular space um, in order to ensure sort of an ethical domain throughout the the community, the global community. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I know um, one of the areas that this gets particularly challenging is when you look into vulnerable communities um, in in society and there was a... um, decision in the Dutch, one of the Dutch courts, uh, was either last week or the week before actually relating to the use of um, AI to track and identify welfare fraud um, potential within the the Dutch system. And actually the High Court um, ruled against the application of the technology because of what you mentioned, Grant, and they saw it as a breach of the human right to to a private life. Mm. Um, So you're right, there's certain... The the European... um, Union, or at least in the Netherlands, they, they see a potential degree to which you can look into someone's private life, but then a point beyond which they don't think it makes sense to do so. So I think that's that's a really interesting challenge and proposition. Yeah, definitely. And at the same time, they're doing the information sharing with other jurisdictions, so they they still want to capture that tax base, as you mentioned. And uh, you know, that's that's probably what's going to drive the interoperability of these, you know. Um, uh, central bank digital currencies and, and be able to track through every transaction. Um, and that's what sort of will drive the adoption in Australia as well. So there you have it, folks. We've explored a range of um, topics around these predictions for 20 years' time. We've touched on everything from um, 
programmable currencies through to augmented humans, uh, to computer-generated um, film production, through to um, questions such as universal basic income and, and the value of work and what it might mean. So we've ranged quite far and wide, but we haven't actually touched on the really big question. And, uh, you know, this is the one that is front and centre of our age, and that is pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Um, pineapple is neither a pine <laughs> nor an apple. It's actually a berry. Well, it's multiple berries. So if you like multiple berries on your pizza, then I'll toast my avocado latte to you. <laughs> and Peter? I've been eating pineapple pizzas for all my life, so I think I just don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've got to admit, I'm a pineapple on pizza kind of guy. So um, thank you very much to our guests, Grant Woodell uh, Johnson, corporate tax partner, and Peter Jing, um, senior manager in KPMG's tax technology team and also a noted transhumanist advocate. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email to kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. You can register for Tax Now to access the website and receive regular updates from across the tax industry and maybe even about the future. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash taxnow or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Taxnow Insights, for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.